The following is a conversation with Gary Kasparov. He's considered by many to be the greatest chess player of all time. From 1986 until his retirement in 2005, he dominated the chess world, ranking world number one for most of those 19 years. While he has many historical matches against human chess players, in the long arc of history, he may be remembered for his match against the machine, IBM's Deep Blue. His initial victories and eventual loss to Deep Blue captivated the imagination of the world, of what role artificial intelligence systems may play in our civilization's future. That excitement inspired an entire generation of AI researchers, including myself, to get into the field. Gary is also a pro-democracy political thinker and leader, a fearless human rights activist, and author of several books, including How Life Imitates Chess, which is a book on strategy and decision-making, Winter is Coming, which is a book articulating his opposition to the Putin regime, and Deep Thinking, which is a book on the role of both artificial intelligence and human intelligence in defining our future. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on iTunes, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. And now, here's my conversation with Gary Kasparov. As perhaps the greatest chess player of all time, when you look introspectively at your psychology throughout your career, what was the bigger motivator? The love of winning or the hatred of losing? Tough question. Have to confess, I never heard it before, which is again, congratulations, it's quite an accomplishment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Losing was always painful. For me, it was almost like a physical pain because I knew that if I lost the game, it's just because I made a mistake. So it's, I always believed that the, the result of the game uh, had to be decided by the quality of my play. Okay, you may say it sounds arrogant, but it helped me to move forward because I always knew that there was room for improvement. So it's the- Was there the fear of the mistake? Actually, fear of mistake guarantees mistakes. And the difference between uh, top players and the very top is that it's the ability to make a decision without predictable consequences. You don't know what's happening. It's just intuitively. I can go this way or that way. And uh, there are always hesitations. People are like, you are just, you know, at the crossroad. You can go right, you can go left, you can go straight. You can turn and go back. And the consequences are just... very uncertain. You have certain ideas what happens on the right or on the left or just, you know, if you go straight, but it's not enough to make well-calculated choice. And uh, when you play chess at the very top, it's it's about your inner strength. So I can make this decision. I will stand firm and I'm not going to waste my time because I have full confidence that I will go through. now, going back to your original question is, I would say neither. It's just, it's the, it's love for winning, hate for losing. They were important elements, psychological elements. But 
the key element. It's the, I would say, the, the driving force was always my passion for, for making, a, making a difference. It's just, I can move forward and I can always, it's, I can always enjoy not just playing, but creating something new. Creating something new. How do you think about that? It's just uh, finding new ideas in the openings, you know, some original plan in the middle game. It's actually that helped me to make the transition from the game of chess where I was on the very top to, to another life where I knew I would not be number one. I would not be necessarily on the top, but I could still be very active and productive by my ability to make the difference by influencing people, say, joining the democratic movement in Russia or talking to people about uh, human-machine relations. There's so many things where I knew my influence may not be as decisive as in chess, but still strong enough to help people to make their choices. So you can still create something new that makes a difference in the world outside of chess. But wait, you've kind of painted a beautiful picture of your motivations to chess, to create something new, to look for those moments of some brilliant new ideas. But were you haunted by something? So you make it seem like to be at the level you're at, you can get away without having demons, without without having fears, without being driven in, by some of the darker forces. I mean, you sound almost religious, you know, darker forces, spiritual uh, no. demons. I mean, do you have a call for a priest? <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's what I'm dressed like. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, just let's go back to, to, to these crucial chess moments where I had to make big decisions. Yes. As I said, it's, it's, you know, it was all about my belief from very early days that I can make all the difference by playing well or by making mistakes. So, the, right. yes, I, I, I always had an opponent across the chessboard opposite me. But no matter how strong the opponent was, whether he just was an ordinary player or another world champion like Anatoly Karpov, I, having all respect for my opponent, I still believe that it's, it's up to me to make the difference. Uh, and um, uh, I, you know, I knew I, I was not invincible. I made mistakes. I made some blunders and you know, with age, you know, I, I made more blunders. So okay, yeah. I knew it, but it's it's still, you know, it's it's very much for me to be decisive factor in the game. I mean, even now, look, I just, you know, my latest chess experience was horrible. I mean, okay, I played Caruana, Caruana Fabi Caruana, uh, it's number two, number two, number three player in the world these days. We play this 960 with the Fisher, so-called Fisher random chess, reshuffling pieces. Yeah, I lost very badly, but it's because I made mistakes. I mean, I had so many winning positions. I mean, 15 years ago, I would have crushed him. So, and it's, it's you know, while I lost, I, I was not so much upset. I mean, I know, as I, as I said in, my, in, in the interview, I can fight any opponent, but not my biological clock. So it's, <laughs> um, it's fighting time is, 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 is always a losing proposition. But even today, at age 56, you know, I, I knew that, you know, I could play great game. I couldn't finish it because I didn't have enough energy or just, you know, I couldn't have the same level of concentration. But, you know, in num number of games where I completely outplayed one of the top players in the world, I mean, gave me a certain amount of, of uh, pleasure. That is, even today, I haven't lost my touch. Not the same, you know, uh, okay, 
the jaws are not as, as strong and the teeth are not as sharp, but I could get him just, you know, almost, you know, to, on the ropes. You still um, got it. Still got it. And it's, you know, and it's, I think it's my wife said it well. I mean, she said, look, Gary, it's somehow, it's not you just fighting bio your biological clock. It's just, you know, maybe it's a signal because, you know, the goddess of chess, since you spoke right yeah, about demons, religiously, the goddess yeah. of chess, Keisha, maybe she didn't want you to win because, you know, if you could beat number two, number three player in the world, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the top players who just recently played a world championship match. If you could beat him, it's, that was really bad for the game of chess. <laughs> but just, just what yeah. people will say, oh, look, the game of chess, you know, it's, 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 it's not making any progress. The game is just, you know, it's, it's totally devalued because look, the, the guy coming out of retirement, you know, just, you know, winning games. Maybe that was good for chess. Not good for you, but it, it's, Look, uh, I've been following your logic. We should always look for, you know, demons, you know, superior <laughs> forces and other things that yes. could, you know, if not dominate our lives, but somehow, you know, play a significant role in in uh, the outcome. Yeah, so the goddess of chess had to send a message. Yeah, I that's okay. Okay, so Gary, you should do something else. <laughs> Time. Now for a question that you have heard before, but give me a chance. You've dominated the chess world for 20 years, even still got it. Is there a moment you said you always look to create something new? Is there is there games or moments where you're especially proud of in terms of your brilliance of a new creative move? You've talked about Mikhail Tall as somebody who was a aggressive and creative chess player in, in your own games. Uh, look, you mentioned Mikhail Tall. It's very aggressive, very sharp player. Uh, famous for his combinations and sacrifices, even called magician from Riga, so for his uh, uh, very unique style. But uh, any any world champion, you know, it's yeah, was a creator. Some of them were so um, flamboyant and flash like tall. Some of them were you no, know, just you know, less uh, uh, discerned uh, at the chessboard like Tigran Petrosian. But every world champion, every top player, brought something into the game of chess. And uh, each contribution was priceless because it's not just about sacrifices. Of course, amateurs, they enjoy, you know, the brilliant games where pieces being sacrificed. It's all just, you know, it's, it all pieces are hanging. And, and, and it's all of a sudden, you know, being material down, rook down, or just, you know, queen down, the, uh, the, uh, the um, weaker side uh, uh, delivers the, uh, the final blow and just, you know, mating opponent's king. But there's, there are other kinds of beauty. I mean, it's a slow positional maneuvering, you know, looking for weaknesses and just and and gradually you know, strangling uh, uh, your opponent and eventually delivering sort of a positional masterpiece. Yeah. So I think I I made more difference in the game of chess than I could I could have imagined when I started playing, and uh, the, the reason I thought it was time for me to to leave was that I mean I knew that I was not. Uh, I was not no longer in the position to uh, uh, bring b bring the same kind of contribution, the same kind of uh, new knowledge in, into the game. So, um, and uh, going back, I could immediately look at my games against Anatoly Karpov. It's not just I won the match in 1985 and became a world champion at age 22, but uh, there were at least two games in that match. Uh, of course, the last one, game 24, that was decisive game of the match. I won and 
became world champion. But also the way I won it was it was a very uh, sharp game, and I found a unique maneuver that was absolutely new, and it became some sort of uh, just a typical now. Though this when the move was made was made at the, uh, on the board and put on display, a lot of people thought it was ugly. So mm-hmm. And another game, game 16, in the match where I just also managed to outplay Karpov completely with black pieces, just you know, paralyzing his entire army in, 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 in its, own, its own, own camp. Technically or psychologically, or was that a mix of both in game 16? Yeah, it, I think it was a big blow to Karpov. I think it was a big psychological victory for a number of reasons. One, the score was equal at the time. And uh, yeah, the world champion, you know, by the rules, could re- retain his title in case of a tie. So we still have, you know, uh, before game 16, we have nine games to go. Uh, and also, it was some sort of a bluff because n- n- neither me nor Karpov saw the refutation of this opening idea. And, uh, um, and I think it says for Karpov, it was double blow because not that he lost the game, actually triple blow. He lost the game. It was a brilliant game. And I played impeccably after, you know, just this, this, this opening bluff. And then, you know, they discovered that it was a bluff. Mm-hmm. So it's the, uh, again, I didn't know, it, I was not bluffing. So that's why, why it's, it happens very often. It's when, you know, some ideas could be refuted. And it's just, mm-hmm. what I found out, and this is, again, going back to your, you know, spiritual theme is that <laughs> it's, it's, you could spend a lot of time working. And when I say you could, it's just, it's, it's in the 80s, in the 90s. It doesn't happen these days because everybody has a computer. You could immediately see if, if it works or it doesn't work. Machine shows your refutation in a split of a second. But Many of the our analysis in the 80s or in the 90s, they were not perfect simply because we were humans and they are just you, you, you analyze the game, you look for some fresh ideas, and then just it happens that they, they, there was something that you missed. Because the level of the concentration at the chessboard is different from one that when you analyze the game, when just analyze, moving the pieces around. And, but somehow, if you spend a lot of time at the chessboard preparing. So in your studies with your uh, coaches, it's hours and hours and hours. And nothing of what you found could, you know, had materialized on the, uh, on, uh, on chess, on the chessboard. Somehow these hours helped, I don't know why, always helped you. It's, it's as if, you know, the amount of work you did uh, could be transformed into some sort of, yeah, spiritual energy that helped you to come up with other great ideas during the board. Again, even if it's, it was, there was no direct connection between your preparation and your victory in the game, there was always some sort of invisible connection between the amount of work you did, uh, your dedication to actually to, and your passion to uh, discover new ideas, and your ability during the game at the chessboard when the clock was ticking, we still had ticking clock, not digital clock at the time. So to come up with some 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 brilliancy. And um and I also can mention many games from the 90s. So it's the obviously all amateurs would pick up my game against Veselin Topolov in 1999 and Vikan Again, because it was a brilliant game, uh the Black King traveled from uh, from uh, its own camp. To into the uh, into into White's camp across the entire board, it doesn't happen often. Trust me, as you know, yeah. in 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 the games of professional players, top professional players. So that's why visually it was one of the most impressive victories. But I could bring to to our attention many other games that were not so impressive uh, for for amateurs, not so 
note so uh, um, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Just guess it's, it's sacrifice is always beautiful. You sacrifice yeah. pieces, and then and then eventually you have so yeah very few resources left, and you 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 use them just to 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 crush your uh, your, your opponent basically. To it's a, you have to make the king because you have almost almost uh, nothing 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 left uh, at your disposal. But um, I you know I up to the very end again less and less, but still up to the very end. I always had games with some sort of, you know, interesting ideas and uh, and games that gave me great satisfaction. But I think it's what happened from 2005 up to these days was also a very very big accomplishment. Since you know, I had to find myself to sort of relocate myself. Yeah, rechannel uh, the creative energies. Exactly, into I mean, other and to to find something where I f- feel comfortable, even confident that. My participation still makes the difference. Beautifully put. So let me ask perhaps a silly question, but sticking on chess for just a little longer, where do you put Magnus Carlsen, the current world champion, in the list of all-time greats? In terms of style, moments of brilliance, consistency? It's a tricky question. You know, uh, the moment you start ranking yeah. uh, world champions... You lose champions, something? It's the, I think it's, it's, it's not fair because... It's the any new generation knows much more about the game than the yes. previous one. So when people say, "Oh, Gary was the greatest, Fisher was the greatest, Magnus was the greatest," it disregards the fact that the great players of the past, whether Laskier, Capablanca, Alokin, I mean, they knew so little about chess by today's standards. I mean, today, just any kid, you know, that spent a few years, you know, in, uh, 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 with uh, uh, his or her chess computer and knows much more about the games, just simply just because you act, have access to this information. And it, ha- it has been discovered generation after generation. We added more and more knowledge to the game of chess. It's about the gap between the world champion and the rest of the field. So it's the... Now, if you look at the gap, then probably Fisher, you know, could be on top. But very short period of time. Then you should also add a time factor. Yeah, I was on top, not as big as very Fisher, long but time. but much longer. So yes. that's so. And also, unlike Fisher, I was succeed. I succeeded in beating next generation. Yeah. Here's the question. Yeah. Let's see if you still got the fire. Speaking of the next generation, because you did succeed beating the next generation. Next, it's close. Okay. What? Anand, short Anand, uh, uh, the sheriff. Kramnik is already twelve years younger. So that's yeah. a next. That's but still yet I. I competed with them, and I just I beat most of them, and uh, and I was still dominant when I left at age of uh, uh, forty-one. So back to Magnus. Magnus, I mean, consistency is phenomenal. The reason Magnus is is on top and uh, it seems unbeatable today, Magnus is is a lethal combination of Fisher and Karpov, which is very it's very unusual because Fisher's style was very dynamic, just. Fighting to the last pawn. I mean, just using every resource available. Karpov was very different. It's just he had an unparalleled ability to use the every piece with a maximum effect. But just mm-hmm. it's minimal resources always p- produce maximum effect. Just, yeah. So now imagine that you merge these two styles. So it is. It's it's like you know it's uh, squeezing every stone for a drop of water. <laughs> but but doing it you know just you know for. 50, 60, 70, 80 moves. I mean, Magnus could go on as long as Fisher with all his passion and energy, and at the same time being as meticulous and 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 and, and deadly as 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 Karpov by just you know using every little advantage. So 
And um, he has good, you know, very good health. It's important. I mean, physical conditions are, by the way, very important. So a lot of people don't recognize it. Their latest study shows that chess players burn thousands of calories uh, 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 during the game. So that puts him on on the top of this field of of the world champions. But again, it's, it's... the discussion that is I saw recently in the internet, whether Gary Kasparov of his peak, let's say late 80s, yeah. could beat Magnus Carlsen today, I mean, it's totally irrelevant because Gary Kasparov in 1989, okay, it's played uh, great chess, but still, I knew very little about chess compared to Magnus Carlsen in 2019, sure. who, by the way, learned from me as well. So that's why, yeah. I'm extremely cautious in making any judgment that involves, you know, time gaps. You ask, you know, Soccer fans, so uh, who is your favorite? Pele, Maradona, or Messi? Yeah. Yeah, uh, who is your favorite? Messi. Messi. Yeah, why? Because... M- maybe because Maradona, maybe. No, because you're younger, but that's simple. Y- right. your, your instinctive answer is correct, because you, you saw... You didn't see Maradona in action. I saw all of them in action, so that's why. But, it's, <laughs> but since, you know, when I was, you know, just following it, you know, just it's Pele and, and Maradona, they were just, you know, they were big stars. And it's, yeah. Messi is already just, I, 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 I was gradually losing interest in just yeah. other things. So I remember Pele in 1970, the final match Brazil-Italy. So that's the first World, World, World Cup soccer I watched. Yeah. So that's the, and, uh, and actually my answer when I just, when I just you know, I, I, because I, I was asked this question as well. So I say that it's just, while it's impossible to make a choice, I would still probably go with Maradona for a simple reason. The Brazilian team in 1970 could have won without Pelé. It was absolutely great. Still could have won. Maybe not, but it is. The Argentinian team in 1986 without Maradona would not be in the final. That's right. So this is, and Messi, he still hasn't won a title. That's, that's <laughs> Could argue for that uh, for an hour. Exactly, but yes. you could say if you ask Maradona, if you look in his eyes, especially, let's say, Gary Kasparov in 1989, he would have said, I was sure as hell would beat Magnus Carlsen. Yeah, just simply the because, confidence, the simply, fire. Simply because, simply because, again, it's just, they saw me in action. So this again, it's it's the age factor is important. Definitely with the passion and energy and and being equipped with all modern ideas. But again, then you make you know a very just important assumption that you could empower Gary Kasparov of '89 with all ideas that have been accumulated over 30 years. That would not be Gary Kasparov. That would be someone else. Yeah. Because again, I belong to 1989. I was way ahead of the field uh, uh, and I, you know, I beat Karpov uh, several times in the World Championship matches and I crossed 2800, which, by the way, if you look at it in chess, in rating, which is just, it's, uh, even today, so this is, this is the rating that I retired. So this is, it's still, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a top two, two, three. So that's, this it's Karwan and Ding. It's about the same rating now. And I crossed 2800 in 1990. Yeah. Well, just you look at the inflation. Yeah. When I crossed 2,800 in, in 1990, there was only one player in 2,700 category, Anatoly Karpov. Now he had more than 50. So just, when you see this, so if you add inflation, so I think my 2,851, it could probably could be more valuable yeah. as Magnus 2,882, which was his hi- hi- highest rating. But anyway, again, Enough too said. many hypotheticals. Your loss to IBM D-Blue in 1997 in my eyes, that is one of the most seminal moments in the history. Again, I apologize for being r- romanticizing the notion, but in the history of our civilization, because humans as a civilization for centuries saw chess as you know the peak of what man can accomplish of intellectual mastery, right? And that moment when a machine could beat a human being 
was inspiring to just an entire, anyone who cares about science, innovation, an entire generation of AI researchers. And yet, to you that loss, at least if reading your face, was seemed like a tragedy, extremely painful, like you said, physically painful. Why? When you look back at your psychology of that loss, why was it so painful? Were you not able to see the seminal nature of that moment? Uh, or, or was that exactly why it was that painful? Uh, uh, as I already said, losing was painful, physically painful. Physical. And the match I lost in 1997 was not the first match I lost to a machine. It was the first match I lost, period. Yes. Uh, that's... Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's... Uh, right. Yeah, uh, that, that makes all the difference to me. Yes. First time I lost. It's just... Now, I lost, and uh, the reason I was so angry that I just, you know, I had uh, suspicions that my loss was not just the result of my bad play. Yes. So though I played quite poorly, you know, just when you started looking at the games today, I made tons of mistakes. But, you know, I, I had all reasons to believe that, you know, there were other, other factors that had nothing to do with the game of chess. And that's why I was angry. But look, it was 22 years ago. It's what on the bridge. We can analyze this match and this is with everything you said. I, I agree with probably one exception is that uh, considering chess, you know, as the sort of... Uh, as a pinnacle of intellectual activities was our mistake. Because, you know, we just thought, oh, it's a, it's a game of the highest intellect and it's just, you know, you have to be so, you know, intelligent and you could see things that, you know, the, uh, the, ordin the, the uh, ordinary mortals could not see. Mm -hmm. It's a game. And uh, uh, all machines had to do in this game is just to make fewer mistakes, not to solve the game. Because the game cannot be solved. I mean, according to Claude Shannon, the number of legal moves is 10 to the 46th power. Mm -hmm. Too many zeros. So just for any computer to finish the job, you know, uh, uh, in 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 next few billion years. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't have to. It's all about making fewer mistakes. And I think that's the this match actually, and what's happened afterwards with other games, with with Go, with Shogi, uh, with uh, video games. It's a demonstration that it's the machines will always beat humans in what I call closed systems. Mm -hmm. The moment you build a closed system, no matter how this system is called, chess, go, shogi, dota, uh, machines will prevail simply because they will bring down number of mistakes. Um, machines don't have to solve it. They just have to... It's the way they outplay us, it's not by just being more intelligent. It's just by by doing something else, but eventually it's just it's capitalizing on our mistakes. When you look at the chess machines ratings today and compare, compare this to Magnus Carlsen, it's the same as comparing Ferrari to Usain Bolt. Mm -hmm. It's the the gap is is I mean by chess standards is insane. 34, 3500 to 2800, 20, on Magnus. It's like difference between Magnus and, a, and an ordinary player from an open international tournament. Uh, it's not because machine understands is better than Magnus Carlsen, but simply because it's steady. Machine has steady hand. And I think that is what we, 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 we have to learn from 1997 experience. 
and from further encounters with computers and sort of the the current state state of affairs with alpha zero uh, beating other machines the idea that we can compete with computers in so-called intellectual fields it's it was wrong from the very beginning it's just it's by the way the 1997 match was not the first victory of machines over over grandmasters over, over grandmasters yeah no actually it's I played against first decent chess computers from late from late eighties. So I played with the prototype of Deep Blue called Deep Thought in 1989. Two rapid chess games in New York. I won handily both games. We played against uh, new um, chess engines like Fritz and other programs. And then it's the was Israeli program Junior that appeared in 1995. Right, 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 I remember. Yeah. So there were there were several programs. I you know I lost few games in Blitz. I lost one match against the computer a chess engine in 1994, Rapid Chess. So I lost one game to Deep Blue in 1996 match, the, man, the match I, I won. Some people, you know, tend to forget about it, that I won the first match. Yes. But it's, it's, we, we made a very important psychological mistake, thinking that the reason we lost Blitz matches, five, five minutes games, the reason we lost some of the Rapid Chess matches, 25 minutes chess, because we didn't have enough time. If you play a longer match, we will not make the same mistakes. Nonsense. So, this, yeah, we had more time, but we still make mistakes. And machine also has more time. And machines, machine will always, you know, uh, will always be steady and consistent compared to humans' instabilities and inconsistencies. And um, today we are at the point where, yes, nobody talks about, you know, uh, humans playing as machines. Now, machines can offer handicap. To, to, to top players are still, you know, uh, uh, will, will, will be favorite. I think we're just learning that it's, it's, it's no longer human versus machines. It's about human working with machines. That's what I recognized in 1998, just after leaking my wounds and spending one year and just, you know, ruminating so the, so what's happened at, in, in this match. And I knew that though we still could play against the machines. I, I had two more matches in, in 2003 playing both uh, Deep Fritz and Deep Junior. Both matches ended as a tie. Mm -hmm. uh, though these machines were not weaker, at least, actually probably stronger than Deep Blue. Um, and by the way, today, uh, chess app on your mobile phone is probably stronger than Deep Blue. <laughs> than Deep Blue I'm no. not speaking even about chess engines that are so much superior. And by the way, when you analyze games we played against Deep Blue in 1997 on your chess engine, they will be laughing. Yeah. So this is, and it also shows that's how chess changed because uh, Chess commentators, they look at some of our games, like game four, game five, brilliant idea. Now you ask uh, um, Stockfish, you ask yeah. Houdini, uh, you ask Commodore, all the leading chess engines. Yeah. Within 30 seconds, they will show you how many mistakes both Gary and D. Blue made <laughs> in the game that was uh, 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 trumpeted as, the, as a great uh, uh, chess match in 1997. Well, okay, so you've made... And interesting, if you can untangle that comment. So now in retrospect, it was a mistake to see chess as the peak of human intellect. Nevertheless, that was done for centuries. So in, me, by the way, in Europe, because yeah. you know, you move to the Far East, they were go they they they, right. they had strong but games, again, games. Again, some of the games, like you know, uh, uh, board games. Yes. A, uh, yeah, I agree. So if I push back a little bit, so now you say that, okay, but it was a mistake to see chess as the epitome. And now, 
And then now there's other things maybe like language, like conversation, like some of the things that in your view is still way out of reach of computers, but inside humans. Do you think, can, can you talk about what those things might be? And do you think just like chess that might fall? Um, soon with the same set of approaches, if you look at alpha zero, the same kind of learning approaches as the machines grow in size. No, no, it's not about growing in size. It's about, again, it's about uh, understanding the difference between closed system and open-ended system. So you think that key difference, so the board games are closed in terms of the, uh, the rule rules, set, the rules, actions, simple, the rules. state space, everything is just constrained. You think once you open it, the machines uh, are lost? Not lost, but again, the effectiveness is very different because machine does not understand the moment it's reaching territory of diminishing returns. Hmm. It's the, to put it in, 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 in a different way, machine doesn't know how to ask right questions. It can ask questions, but it will never tell you which questions are relevant. So this is the, it's like about the, it's the, it's a direction. So these, it's, I think it's in human machine relations, we have to consider so uh, our role and people, many people feel uncomfortable that this, the territory that, that belongs to us is, is shrinking. Uh, I'm saying, so what, you know, this is eventually will belong to the last few decimal points, but it's like having, so a very powerful gun that's, and, 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 and all you can do there is slightly, you know, alter direction of the bullet, maybe, you know, 0.1 de uh, uh, degree of, of this angle. But that means a mile away, 10 meters of the target. So, yes. so that's, we have to recognize that is a certain unique human qualities that machines in a f foreseeable future will not be able to reproduce. And, uh, and the effectiveness of, of this cooperation, collaboration, depends on our understanding what exactly we can bring into the game. So uh, the greatest danger is when we try to interfere with machine superior knowledge. So that's why I always say that sometimes you'd rather have, by reading these pictures in radiology, uh, you may probably prefer an experienced nurse than rather than having top professor because she will not try to interfere with machines' understanding. So this it's very important to know that if machines knows how to do better things in ninety five percent, ninety six percent of territory, we should not touch it because it's 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 happened. We, it's like in chess. Recognize they they do it better. See where we can make the difference. You mentioned Alpha Zero. I mean Alpha Zero is it's it's a it's actually a first step into what you, you may call AI because right. everything that's being called AI today is just, it's, uh, it's, it's one or another variation of what Claude Shannon characterized as a brute force. It's a yeah. type A machine, whether it's Deep Blue, whether it's uh, Watson, it's, and all these, these, these modern technologies that are being trumpeted as, as AI, it's still brute force. It's the, all they do, it's they do optimization. It's this, they are, you know, they, uh, they keep, you know, improving the way to process human-generated data. Mm -hmm. Now, AlphaZero is, is the first step towards, you know, machine-produced knowledge. Yes. Which is, by, by the way, it's quite ironic that the first company that championed that was IBM. <laughs> oh, it's, it's in backgammon. Interesting, it's in backgammon. Back Yes, you just you should you should you should look at IBM. It's, it's a neurogammon. It's the it's the scientist called <laughs> so Cesaro. He's still working at IBM. They had in the early nineties, 
it's just it's the it's the, in, in the program that played you know the alpha zero type so just trying to come up with own strategies but because of success of the blue this project uh, had been not abandoned but just you know it's it's it wasn't uh, it was put on calls and now we just you know it's 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 uh, you know it's everybody talks about about this the the machines generated knowledge so as revolutionary and it is but there's still you know many open ended questions yes alpha zero generates its own uh, uh, data many th- ideas that alpha zero generated in chess were quite intriguing so i i i looked at these games with not just with interest but with you know it's, it was quite exciting to mm. learn how machine could actually you know juggle all the pieces and just uh, uh play positions with a broken material balance sacrificing material always being ahead of other programs you know one or two moves ahead by by foreseeing the consequences not over calculating because machines other machines were at least as powerful in, in calculating mm-hmm. but it's having this unique knowledge based on discovered patterns yeah. after playing 60 million games almost something that feels like intuition exactly but there's one problem yeah now uh the simple question if if alpha zero faces superior opponent let's say another powerful computer accompanied by a human who could help just to discover certain problems because i already i looked at many alpha zero games i visited their lab you know spoke to demis khasabis and his team and i i know there's certain weaknesses there now if these weaknesses are exposed then the question is how many games will it take for alpha zero to correct it the answer is hundreds of thousands even if it keeps losing it can, yeah. it's this because the whole system is based yeah. so it's now imagine so this is you can have a human by just make a few tweaks so humans are still more flexible and and as long as we recognize what is what is our role where we can play sort of uh, um so the uh, uh most valuable part in this collaboration so it's it will help us to understand what are the next steps in human machine collaboration beautifully put so let's talk about the thing that machines certainly don't know how to do yet which is morality machines and morality it's another question that you know just it's it's uh, is being asked all the time these days and it's, i think it's another phantom that is haunting uh a general public because it's just being fed with this you know illusions is that how can we avoid machines you know uh having bias yeah. being prejudices yeah. you cannot because it's like looking in the mirror and yes. complaining about what you see if you have certain bias in the society machine will uh, will just follow it yeah. it's just it's it's you know you, you look at the mirror you don't like what you see there you can you know uh you can break it you can try to distort it yeah. or you can try to actually change something just by yourself <laughs> yeah, so by, they by, show- by yourself yes so it's it's very important to understand is this is you cannot expect machines to to improve the yeah. ills of our society and moreover machines will simply you know just you know amplify it yes yeah but the thing is people are uh more comfortable with other people doing injustice with with being biased we're not comfortable with machines having the same kind of bias so uh that's a that's an interesting standard that we place on machines with autonomous vehicles they have to be much safer with uh automated systems of course of course they're much safer statistically they're much safer than that it's not of course why would it it's not of course it's it's not given autonomous vehicles you have to work really hard to make them no, it's the, it, safer uh i i i i think it just it goes without saying is the the outcome of the of this 
I wouldn't call it competition, but comparison is very clear. But the problem is not about being, you know, safer. It's the uh, 40,000 people or so every year died in car accidents in the United States. And it's, it's statistics. One accident with, with autonomous vehicle and it's front page of a newspaper. Yes. So, so yes. It's the, it's, again, it's about psychology. <laughs> so it's while people, you know, kill each other in car accidents because they make mistakes, they make more mistakes. For me, it's, it's, it's not a question. Of course we make more mistakes because we're human. Yes, machines always, and by the way, no machine will ever reach 100% perfection. That's another, that's another important fake story that, 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 that is being fed to the public. If machine doesn't reach 100% performance, it's not safe. No. All you can ask any computer, whether it's you know playing chess or or doing the stock market calculations or uh, driving your autonomous vehicle, it's to make fewer mistakes. And mm. yes, I know it's not you know it's not easy for us to accept because ah, if you know if you have two humans you know colliding in their cars, okay, it's life. If one of one of these cars is autonomous vehicle, and by the way, even if it's hu- it's humans' fault. Terrible! How could you allow a machine to, uh, to 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 uh, run without a driver at, at, at the wheel? So you know, let's linger that for a second. That double standard, the way you felt with your first loss against uh, Deep Blue, were you treating the machine differently than you would of a human? Or so, what do you think about that difference between the way we see machines? And humans. No, it's the at that time, you know, for me it was a match, and that's why I was angry because I believed that lost. the match was not, you know, fairly organized. So it's it's uh, uh, definitely there were unfair advantages for for IBM, and I wanted to play there another match, it's like a rubber match. So your a- angered or uh, displeasure was aimed more like at the humans behind IBM versus the actual yes, pure absolute, algorithm. Absolutely. Look, I mean, I I knew at the time, and by the way, I was. Objectively speaking, I was stronger at that time, so that's that probably added to my anger because I knew I could beat machine. Yeah, yeah. So this and that's the and as I lost and I knew I was not well prepared. So because they, I have to give them credit, they did some good work uh, from 1996, and I, but I still could beat the beat the machine. So I made too many mistakes. Also, this is the whole it's this the publicity around the match. So yeah. I I underestimated the effect. You know, just it's and the, and being called the you know the 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 brain's last stand. You know, it's okay. No, <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask. Uh, so I was born also in the Soviet Union. What lessons do you draw from the rise and fall of the Soviet Union in the 20th century? When you just look at this nation that is now look, pushing forward into what Russia is, if you look at the long arc of history of the 20th century, what do we take away what do we take away from that? I think the lesson of history is clear. Uh, undemocratic systems, totalitarian regimes, systems that are based on controlling their citizens and just uh, every aspect of their life, not offering opportunities to for private initiative, central planning systems, they doomed. They just, you know, they... Uh, they cannot be driving force for innovation. So they, in, in the history timeline, I mean, they could cause certain, you know, distortion of, of, uh, of uh, the concept of progress. Uh, they, by the way, they may call themselves progressive, but we know that there's, there's the damage that they caused to, to humanity is just, it's, it's, it's yet to be measured. But at the end of the day, they fail. 
they fail, and it's uh, and the end of the Cold War was a great triumph of the free world. It's not that the free world is perfect. It's very important to recognize the fact that I always like to mention, you know, one of my favorite books, The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> that the there's no there's no absolute good, yeah. but there is an absolute evil. Good, yeah. you know, comes in many forms, but uh, we all, you know, it's being humans or being even, you know, humans from fairy tales or just some sort of uh, mythical creatures. It's the, you can always find uh, spots on the sun. So this is conducting war and just, and, and, and fighting for justice. There are always things that, you know, can be easily criticized. Mm -hmm. And uh, human history is, the, is a never ending quest for perfection. Uh, but we know that there is absolute evil. We know it's, for me, it's now clear that it's, I mean, it's, nobody argues about Hitler being absolute evil, but I think it's very important to recognize Stalin was absolute evil. Communism caused more damage than any other ideology uh, uh, in the 20th century. And unfortunately, while we all know that fascism was condemned, but there was no Nuremberg for communism. And that's why we could see, you know, still this, the, uh, this, the successors of Stalin are feeling uh, far more comfortable. And so you, you is one of them. You highlight a few interesting connections actually between Stalin and Hitler. I mean, they're, they're, in, in terms of the uh, adjusting or clarifying the the history of World War II, which is very interesting. Of course, we don't have time, so let me ask. You can ask, you know, I just, I just recently delivered a speech in Toronto yeah. uh, at 80th anniversary of Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. Yes. It's something that I believe, you know, just, you know, has must, must be taught in the schools that the World War II uh, uh, had been started by two dictators yes. by signing this this uh, criminal criminal treaty collusion of two tyrants in August 1939 that led to the beginning of the world World War II and the fact is that eventually Stalin had no choice but to join allies because Hitler attacked him so it just doesn't you know uh, uh, eliminate the fact that Stalin helped Hitler to start World War II, and he was one of the beneficiaries at early at early stage by uh, annexing uh, part of Eastern Europe. And as a result of World War II, he annexed almost entire Eastern Europe. And for many Eastern European nations, the end of the World War II was the beginning of, of communist occupation. So Putin, you've talked about as a man who stands between Russia and democracy, essentially today. You've been a strong opponent and critic of Putin. Let me ask again, how much does fear enter your mind and heart? So in, in 2007, there's this interesting comment from Oleg Kalugin, KGB general. He said that I do not talk details. People who knew them are all dead now because they were vocal. I'm quiet. There's only one man who's vocal and he may be in trouble. World chess champion Kasparov. He has been very outspoken in his attacks on Putin, and I believe he's probably next on the list. So clearly your life has been, and perhaps continues to be in danger. How do you think about having the views you have, the ideas you have, being in opposition as you are in, the, in this kind of context when your life could be in danger? Uh, that's the reason I live in New York. So it's the was not my first choice, but I knew I had to leave Russia at one point. And uh, among other places, New York is the safest. Is it safe? No. I mean, it's just, it's the, I know what happens, what happened, uh, what is happening with many of Putin's enemies. But at the end of the day, I mean, what can I do? I mean, it's, I, uh, 
I could be very proactive by trying to change things I can influence. But here are we have facts. I, uh, I cannot stop doing what I've been doing for a long time. It's the right thing to do. I grew up you know, with my family teaching me sort of the wisdom of Soviet dissidents, do what you must and so be it. I could try to be cautious by not traveling to certain places where you know, my security could be at risk. Uh, there are so many invitations to speak at different locations in the world, and I have to say that uh, many countries are just now are not destinations that I can afford to travel. Uh, my mother still lives in Moscow. I meet her a few times a year. She was devastated when I had to leave Russia because since my father died in uh, 1971, so she was 33, and she dedicated her entire life to her only son. But she recognized in just a year or so since I left Russia that it was the only chance for me to continue my normal life. So just to, I mean, to be relatively safe and to, to do what she taught me to do, to make the difference. Do you think you will ever return to Russia? Or let oh, me ask a different well, I'm way. Sure. When Even sooner than many people think, because I think Putin's regime is facing uh, unsurmountable different, uh, difficulties. And uh, again, I read enough historical books to know that dictatorships, they, they end suddenly. It's just on Sunday, dictator feels comfortable. He believes he's popular on Monday morning. He's bust. The good news and bad news. I mean, the, the bad news is that I don't know when and how Putin rule ends. The good news, he also doesn't know. <laughs> okay, well put. Let me ask um, a question that seems to preoccupy the American mind from the perspective of Russia. One, did Russia interfere in the 2016 U.S. election, government sanctioned? And future, two, will Russia interfere in the 2020 U.S. election? And what does that interference look like? It's very odd, you know, we had such an intelligent conversation. <laughs> and, and you are ruining everything by asking such a stupid question. <laughs> it's just, it's been it going almost, downhill the it's, entire it's, way. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's insulting for my intellect. Okay. Of course they did interfere. Of but, course they did absolutely everything to elect Trump. I mean, they said it many times. It is just, you know, I yeah. met enough KGB colonels in my life to tell you that you know, just the way Putin looks at Trump. Yeah. This is the way looks, and I don't have to hear what he says, what Trump says. You know, just his, I don't need to go through con congressional investigations. The way Putin looks at Trump is the way the KGB officers looked at the assets. It's just, and falling to 2020, of course they will do absolutely everything to help Trump to survive because I think the damage that Trump's reelections could cause to America and to the free world. It's just, it's beyond one's imagination. I think basically if Trump is reelected, he will ruin NATO because he's already heading in this direction, but now he's just, he's still limited by the reelection uh, uh, hurdles. Uh, if he's still in the office after uh, November 2020, okay, January 2021, um, I don't want to think about it. My problem is not just Trump because Trump is basically it's a symptom. But the problem is that I don't see it. Just it's the <laughs> in American political horizon, uh, 
politicians who could take on Trump uh, uh, for for all damage that he's doing for the free world. Not just things that that's happened that went wrong in America. So there's the. It seems to me that the campaign, political campaign on the Democratic side, is is fixed on certain important but still secondary issues. Because mm. when you have the foundation of the republic in jeopardy, I mean, you cannot talk about healthcare. I mean, I understand how important it is, but it's still secondary because the entire framework of American political life is at risk. Yeah. And you have Vladimir Putin just, you know, just uh, it's having free hands by, by, his, by attacking America and other free countries. And by the way, we have so much evidence about Russian interference in Brexit, in elections in almost every European country. And thinking that they will be shy of attacking America in 2020, now with, with Trump in the office, yeah, uh, I think it's, um, again, it definitely diminishes the intellectual quality of our conversation. <laughs> uh, I do what I can. Last question. If you can go back, just look at the entirety of your life. You accomplished more than most humans will ever do. If you could go back and relive a single moment in your life, what would that moment be? Uh, um, yeah, there are moments in my life when I think about what could be done differently, but... No, experience happiness and joy and pride just just to just to I touch know, once again i know again. but it's this it's the it's look i made many mistakes in my life so i just it's the uh, I, I know that at the end of the day it's just, i believe in the butterfly effect so it's the it's the i knew moments where i could now if i'm there at that point in 89 in 93 you pick up a year i could improve my actions by not doing this stupid thing but then how do you know that I will have all other accomplishments? Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, we just have to just follow this, if you may call wisdom of Forrest Gump, you know, it's the life is this, you know, it's, this, it's, it's, it's a box of, 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 yeah. of chocolate and you don't know what's inside, but you have to go one by one. So it's the, I'm, I'm happy with who I am and where I am today. And I am very proud, not only with my chess accomplishments, but that I made this transition. And uh, since I left chess, you know, I built my own reputation that had some influence on the game of chess, but not, uh, it's not, you know, directly derived from, from, from the game. Uh, I'm grateful for my wife, so who helped me to build this life. We actually married in 2005. It was my third marriage, that's why I said I made mistakes in my life. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and I, by the way, I'm close with two kids from my previous marriages. Yes. So that's, that's the, I mean, you know, I managed to sort of to balance my life and, uh, and here, you know, I live in New York, so we have our two kids born here in New York. Uh, it's it's new life, and it's you know it's it's busy. Sometimes I wish I could you know I could limit my engagement in many other things uh, that that are still you know uh, uh, taking time and energy. But life is exciting, and um, as long as I can feel that I have energy, I have strengths, I have uh, passion to make the difference. I'm happy. I think that's a beautiful moment to end on. Gary, спасибо большое. Thank you very much for talking today. Thank you. Спасибо.